Hello, my name is Steve Pretty, and I'm a musician, composer, and performer from London. Welcome to my podcast, Steve Pretty, on the origin of the pieces. This is a show that helps you to hear and understand music in new ways. So, welcome back everyone. I hope you've had a brilliant couple of weeks. Of course, if you celebrate it, it's been Christmas since the last episode. And uh, yeah, it's been a busy couple of weeks for me. I did more, actually more Christmas gigs than usual. I don't tend to do a lot of Christmas themed gigs, but for one reason or another this year, I ended up doing a load of those, which was fine broadly fine and uh, also of course uh, we celebrated Christmas I'm with my family I'm very lucky I'm recording this in uh, Suffolk it's very windswept so you might be able to hear the raging sea and the the, the house being battered by uh, strong winds so apologies if uh, yeah if the sound quality is slightly different from usual but that's why thank you very much for all the feedback you sent about the previous episode episode six featuring my very special guest Nitin Sawney the musical polymath music producer and composer who took us through uh, that uh, interesting form of flamenco solea um, it went a lot deeper than we do usually uh, in the show with Nitin because his, his breadth and depth of knowledge is just astonishing. So uh, I kind of wanted to, to you know, let him really go deep and I'm really glad that we did. It was really interesting. I was a little bit worried that it might have left some of you uh, behind. So uh, apologies if that was the case. But the feedback I've had from people has been pretty much universally good uh, and the people found it really interesting you know quite heavy heavy going had to really concentrate I think in some of that because there's a lot of information there but hopefully people found that uh, enlightening and interesting as always if you've got any feedback about the show please do drop me a line originofthepieces.com you'll see my contact details there or at Steve Pretty in the various social media outlets uh, but yeah, thanks again to Nitin for that uh, show. I was really, really proud of that one. I thought there was really interesting insights uh, into that music, into music in general, uh, and of course into the guitar, the beautiful flamenco guitar that he demonstrated so wonderfully. So on to today's show. Now we've got a slightly different format than usual, slightly longer today than usual because I've got three really special interviews for you um, and actually this episode is going to be no genre tombola that's because I have got lost in exploring UK hardcore I'll explain more but um, I've been busy making some UK hardcore music and I'm going to be playing that next episode and I thought since this episode was long enough already um, we're going to save that for the first episode back in the new year Now, as you can hear, I'm quite congested, like pretty much everyone else in the UK at this time of year, as far as I can tell. So you'll be relieved to hear that you're not going to be hearing much of me in this state today. Instead, I'm going to be playing out these three very different interviews, uh, but they've got an unexpected common thread between them, which is that they are all three trombonists. First up, we're going to be talking to Steve Thompson about sending his album to the moon. Steve is a brilliant trombonist and composer uh, from London, who I've known for many years. And then we've got another brilliant trombonist and composer, Rosie Turton, who's going to be actually talking about the trombone uh, and talking us through that and giving us some entertaining noises in my shed with the binaural mics on. You may remember you want to put headphones on for that bit. And last up, we have an incredibly special guest in the shape of Commander Chris Hadfield, 
formerly of the International Space Station. An amazing astronaut, an amazing test pilot, an incredible musician. We talk about all sorts of things, music, what it's like to have to change guitar strings when you're orbiting 100 miles above the Earth, how it is recording in space, the value of music, the point of music, how important music is to humanity, all sorts of things. So I have a really fascinating extended interview with Chris. It was a real privilege talking to Chris because he doesn't normally give podcast interviews, but he made a rare exception for this show. So many thanks to Chris, many thanks to Rosie and to Steve. So without further ado, let's get on with it. We've got a lot of stuff to get through. Here we go. So my first guest for this episode is Steve Thompson. Now, Steve is a great trombonist and musician, and he's played with Hackney Connery Band. He and I did a show at the Shakespeare's Globe. Um, I've played in his band, 1201 Alarm, which is what we're talking about today. Um, He very kindly took me over to Singapore a number of years ago, and we did some gigs over there, which was amazing. Um, And today we're talking about an amazing side of his project, 1201 Alarm, which is that he's sending his album, his first album, to the moon. It's going to be the first album of music on the moon which is quite a claim and so we talk about that um, we talk about his second album which is kind of celebrating this moon i met up with him at wilton's music hall which is of course where i'm going to be doing my show on the 20th of january live podcast recording and gig tickets still available uh, there's more information about that later but he and i met there for a drink and a chat uh, there's a bit of background noise so apologies for that but over to steve thompson in wilton's music hall because you've got a new record. It's a celebration of the first album, Hello World, that you played on, I can't remember how many tracks you did, at least two. Yeah, a couple, yeah. A couple, I think, yeah, yeah. And that one was all inspired by science, technology and endeavour. But we we came down to a studio and we got a load of scientists who are also musicians to kind of play along. And we had like Helen Jertsky was playing um, theremin, and right. uh, yeah. Jim Alkalili was playing guitar. And we have Libby Jackson, who's head of UK Space Exploration, was playing oboe. That's right. Do you remember? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. It was such a mad band. It was such a yeah, mad yeah. band, yeah. So plus, obviously, all the band as well. And Marcus DeSalto. Yeah, he was good, doing trumpet with you, wasn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was good. So the whole album was kind of embraced by the science community. So what they did, they put it on board a spaceship called the Peregrine Lander. And it's been loaded aboard that and it's going to kind of be blasted off to the moon and they're going to try and do a soft landing on the moon <laughs> and then dump my record on the moon and it will become the first album on the moon. We were saying it's not as simple as just getting... Yeah, you can't just, just take a CD up there. You said you can't take a vinyl not, up there. Not really. So first of all, there's a couple of things. So roughly it's about a million dollars a kilogram. So that's, <laughs> sure, that's okay. one thing, which is... So like thing. a heavyweight vinyl. A heavyweight like vinyl, yeah. You don't want the 180 gram <laughs> no, version. No. That's going to be a lot... But also, um, on the moon is quite quite nasty conditions. So yeah. I think when um, when Apollo landed, it was like ninety six degrees Celsius, so just four degrees before below boiling water, and it gets yeah. up as much as about two hundred and something, and God. down as like minus ninety odd or something Ooh. like that. So it's like a huge thing. So basically, if you've got any traditional media like records or tapes or mm. CDs or something, they're just going to melt into like a ball in no time. Yeah, or whatever they'll be destroyed in some way. I don't know. 
So um, what Astrobotic have done, which is the, the company that's taking it up, they've um, they built like kind of data storage things like essentially um, SD cards. Yeah. And, and so you, you kind of like have a little space for your SD card and that that's in the nice. in the payload, and that goes up. So it's a digital version of the album. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that, that yeah. makes sense. I mean, yeah, it's what, what format works best on the moon is a is a tricky one. I mean, it's a tricky one actually. Yeah, yeah. It's quite interesting about how people don't realise like the, the the incredible conditions. Like, so when twelve people have actually walked on the moon, mm. like what they had to do to yeah, make that work. This is back in the sixties and seventies. Yeah. When, yeah, yeah, You know. And technology was still, I don't know, in its kind of infancy of this sort of thing. It's good to see that, that um, you know, physical media of some sort is making a comeback somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the tape revival on Earth and the SD card revival. SD <laughs> revival on the moon. So, yeah, that's, a, that's the whole thing. So the first moon colonists who go out there and yeah. uh, discover this. Better take an SD card reader. They should take an SD card reader. I mean, will that be a thing? I don't know. When will moon colonists happen? I don't know. Yeah, well, they've got the soundtrack when they do. We've got the soundtrack when they do, exactly. I mean, it's, it's really, for a start, it's a really cool thing. And really, like, the, you're the first person to do that, right? So, as far as I know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, music has gone into space before. Mm-hmm. So on the Voyager um, uh, probes that went out um, in the 70s, there's an actual gold disc That's right. that has music. Um, I think that Johnny B. Good and there's... Yeah. Um, I don't know. Carl Sagan put it together, didn't he? Yeah. I think Carl Sagan yeah. was, a, was a big, um, yeah, yeah, person to put that together. Um, so music is out there and that's now left the solar system. Yeah, so it's, it's literally a vinyl-style golden record. That's right. It survives, yeah. survives yeah. the rigors of space yeah. travel. I've got a copy of it at home, actually. Have you? actual vinyl. It's oh, gone nice. gold vinyl, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's one of the most famous examples, I think, of like the madness of music le- legal contracts. Because I think the Beatles were supposed to be on that rather than... Only be good, I think. Is that true? I think so. I think, the I think there's, supposed like... to be a, there's supposed to be a Beatles record on it, but then in the in the clause of the contract, it's like it talks about ex, exploitation of the of the rights to the track yeah. across the known universe, right? And that meant it couldn't go on. No way, <laughs> yeah, really, because yeah, yeah. I know <laughs> Beatles have a thing that they're not allowed on any compilation albums. That's right. Yeah, so no, no. maybe they didn't want to be put on I with like other things. So maybe it's something absolutely, like that. That's the first. That is crazy, human isn't it? Constructed thing. To leave the solar system, and the Beatles were like no. Well, I don't think it was probably not them. They're probably no. quite for it, but somewhere along the line, the legal people were like no, no, no. But think of the think of the lost revenue. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Music lawyers, this has got out of hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. But maybe that's the thing. Maybe the, the, the Beatles would have crashed into a planet, and they would have gone, "This is amazing," and then we can't monetize that now because we've, we've we've given it to the universe. Right. I, suppose, I suppose once it's out of your hands, you don't know what's going to do with it. But at all. Uh, yeah, what you're yeah. doing is really. Is really cool and unique. It's just fun. It's just ridiculous and fun. But you're, you're, you've got a quite classical um, background. I mean, so we're talking yeah. about your, we're here mainly talking about your record, which is not a, a classical. So a lot of it is quite jazzy. Yeah, there yeah, is definitely. there is a symphony orchestra on it as well. Yeah. So the Cape Town Philharmonic play that's the string section. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the one that's with Helen Sharman, who is Britain's first astronaut. Yep. A lot of people think that's Tim Peake. No, I know, I know. It's because yeah. he's the most recent one, I suppose. Exactly, yeah, I think so. No, yeah, we've yeah. both met and, and worked with Helen Sharman through, yeah. through Robin Inns. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, yeah, she's, she's amazing. She's fan, so wonderful, yeah. And I didn't realise that she's quite an accomplished pianist as well. You, yeah, so she's on the record, right? Yeah, as you say. that's right. So, um, so I mean, I basically just reached out to her and sort of said, oh, Helen, do you remember me? Um, my album's going to the moon which is a bit weird but I thought you might be interested and she wrote back and said yeah I really am that's great and then I spoke to her agent Diana who sort of said um, 
Helen actually is a really good pianist and, and yeah, you know, let's, you know, if you're interested, and I said, I'm 100% interested, let's, let's put this past Helen, see what she thinks. And so I wrote to her and said, look, would you like to play on the album? And she said, yeah. So I wrote her this piece and I wrote it in, because I didn't really know like what Helen's ability would be on the piano, mm, with all mm. due respect. Yeah, of course. You know, she's not a professional musician, so I was just like, right, well, you know. So I didn't want to write anything like too phenomenally difficult, yeah. and like, but I also wanted to kind of capture what I thought she might be feeling when she was looking down on on Earth from 250 miles and the kind of beauty and the majesty of the planet. Yet also, there's a little bit of danger in there as well mm, because obviously, yeah. flying in space is not easy, you know. Um, so and she was so brilliant but she came down to we use a floating studio in, mm. in London called um, Lightship 95 yep. which is a fantastic place to record it's, it's cool, really really it? good yeah um, but I wanted to record her on a, a particular keyboard and we had a bit of a, a pedal malfunction now a pedal on a piano is a really really important expressive tool so like to play without one is practically impossible yep. you can't you you really can't do. Can you just explain why that is on the piano? Yeah, so um, the pedal that I'm talking about in particular is it's a sustain pedal and it just holds on the notes for a little bit more. So you, you can actually hit a note on the piano and then lift it off, but if you're holding the pedal down, it will sustain that note and it makes everything beautifully fluid and just what we call legato, which means smoothly mm. in music. So it just kind of gives you that kind of whole expression. It's really, really important. And it wasn't working on the day. So we had to rig up this kind of manual thing that I was kind of like doing a pedal with my hands and everything while Helen was just doing it with her foot and I was like looking at her foot. It was a crazy <laughs> situation. Wow. Like any professional musician would have probably thrown their toys out of the pram and said, wow can't work under these conditions but we were really up against it studio time was like kind of running out and yeah. it had to be somewhere you know all these sorts of things were happening and so we made it work and she was completely unflappable but the thing is <laughs> so that your the name of the project is 1201 alarm right? yes and uh, but that's quite relevant to this yeah it? absolutely yeah so that the 1201 alarm is something that happened on the apollo 11 mission so apollo 11 was the, the, the spacecraft that actually took the first humans, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, to the moon. And just when they were just about to land on the moon, this 1201 alarm went off. And of course, back in those days, it's just like, what the heck's a 1201 alarm? Nobody yeah. knows what that is. So they kind of like quickly looked it up and it's, like, it's the navigation computer and it's crashing. So we basically don't know where we are. <laughs> so Buzz Aldrin was like, okay, I'm going to reboot the navigation computer and see if we can work out. Control out, delete. Control- <laughs> <laughs> turn it off and on again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> turn it on, off and on again. I really don't know how he did it. It was obviously before the days of control out, delete, you know. But uh, the nav computer just crashed again. Then it produced a 1202 alarm. And it's just like, what the hell's a 1202 alarm? Same thing. And now the nav computer's crashing. So in the end, Neil Armstrong just went like, don't worry about it I'll just look out the window and land which to me is just like <laughs> yeah I'm paraphrasing but that's just incredible isn't it yeah, like, yeah, I mean I don't know about you but I kind of go into a panic attack if I can't find my car keys but <laughs> let alone crashing into a planet with our navigation computer a planet Steve sorry not a planet not, it's a moon Come it's on. a moon not a planet <laughs> but yeah it's um, I mean but that, I think that is the thing about about that, that spirit isn't it of, of like well, we this isn't working, so we get them. So we're just going to do but it anyway. I think as musicians, there is something. I, I I feel like I've been in quite a few scenarios where like, well, this isn't working, and we've got to rely on our musical experience to get through the yeah. gig in some way. So, but that's actually one of the things that I um, I'm saying this in front of everybody in the world now. But I really admire about you, and I wish I was a bit more like that because I'm a bit of a control freak, and mm. it probably comes from my classical mm. kind of upbringing where it's very much like don't deviate from the plan sort of thing. 
Yeah. I mean, that's not strictly true. If you no, go no. back to kind of like really old composers like Bach, it was very much improvised and, and all that sort of mm. thing. Gershwin improvised um, most of Rhapsody in Blue on the first night that he played it because he hadn't actually got around to writing it yet. You know, so <laughs> all, all of these... I know, right? <laughs> yeah. But generally the thing that we do in classical music is, is kind of, you know, there's a game plan and yeah. you stick to that game plan and you rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and you get it exactly how you want it to be and I think I really one of the things when I started working with you guys is is learning to embrace that what I've called serendipity it's just like okay that's not entirely which is the jazz thing isn't it it is the jazz thing but it's think, not entirely what we wanted but now we've discovered something even better that's the thing it is the jazz thing partly but it's also I, I find it with with composing I find that serendipity incredibly Valuable, and you know where basically, if I'm if I'm writing a piece of music and then something goes, like if something goes wrong with you know it's all often of course you're writing on the computer often these days, mm. and so something will be something audio will be sent to the wrong place or some signal will be going to the wrong yeah. area or whatever, and you're like why is this sound? And then you're like, you like you kind of take a step back and think actually that sounds quite cool. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know what's happening there. I can't I, you know it wasn't deliberate, <laughs> but whatever's gone wrong here. I think I, I prefer that. I think I had that moment actually on when I was composing the album, um, and um, I wanted to sort of discover some new and kind of like unearthly sort of sounds for this. And I used the new synth that I've not used before, and I couldn't work it, and I didn't really understand it. Mm. It kind of uses like um, samples, which basically means that um, they've recorded something. It could mm-hmm. be anything. It could be a musical instrument, or it could be somebody sneezing or it could yep. be a squeaky table like we seem to have here today there we go thank you that's our table that's squeaking uh, it could be anything and they've kind of scrunched all these things together and it kind of loops around and keeps playing all these different samples mm-hmm. and so I kind of started it and I didn't know what note I was going to get out of it I started playing it and it was just the weirdest thing and it's great I love it and mm. it just produced this really really spooky sort of weird sound yeah. which I still don't know how to stop it so it's probably still going <laughs> it's still, going, it's it's still going. going eight months after I wrote the track <laughs> it's still going yeah. And my thanks once again to the brilliant Steve Thompson for that really interesting interview and chat about how to get an album onto the moon. Right, what's next? How do we follow an album going to the moon? I'll tell you how we follow it with another trombonist in the shape of the brilliant Rosie Turton. Now, Rosie is a mainstay of the UK jazz scene, uh, especially in and around London. She's part of the kind of new wave of jazz that has been uh, taking over the airwaves in recent years. And uh, I had her in the studio for a session uh, that we were working on together. And she and I discussed the trombone. We discussed uh, the different techniques. And we're going to take you into a little bit of an insight into that. Simultaneously very expressive and also quite comedic instrument. So over to Rosie in the studio. Now once again this is an interview that I did with a binaural microphone so that means you'll get most out of this you'll be put in Rosie's own position of playing the trombone if you put your headphones on now. If you haven't got headphones don't worry speakers will be fine but headphones on if you can. Here we go here's Rosie. Yeah so would you mind introducing yourself for the sake of the podcast? Yeah so (laughs) hi I'm Rosie Turton I play trombone also play 
dabble in modular synths and yeah. and you you mainly play jazz right yeah the music i write for my band has kind of influenced um, i suppose by modal jazz if i were to put it in a category which is kind of like a lot of one chord two chord sort of light jazz that yeah sort of insp- i guess some artists to put out there would be i suppose like alice coltrane yeah ferris sanders um McCoy Tyner. Um, my band is just named after me. Yeah. <laughs> Rosie Dead. Rosie Dead. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. 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 Um, and we've been doing some nice stuff today. We've been working on this uh, project, but you also have been playing uh, a bit with Hackney Colleague Band this year, right? Which has been fun. Yeah, it's been really fun. We did some recording yeah, in the we summer. Did. Um, the new album which was really fun yeah had a sneak preview of one of the tunes earlier that's right amazing that's right um and then yeah i've done a couple of gigs as well yeah Yeah. but so before we go any further i'm going to get you to talk about the trombone stuff but i wonder if you could just play something so just demonstrate just so basically maybe just around what we've just been doing today something on a minor just a bit a bit of blowing so people can hear the trombone before we start talking about it cool So trombone, medium sized brass instrument, it's pretty fair to say. So sort of double the length of the trumpet, right? Like a, more or less. Yeah, I guess so. Do you mean like the trumpet if all the pipes were stretched out? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's true. I guess it is. Yeah, medium sized. Medium sized brass instrument. Yeah. yeah, so plays pretty low. Could you play some low stuff for us? <laughs> So pretty low, but also pretty high. Yeah. And there are different types of trombone, right? There are. So this is kind of, I guess, yeah, the mid-range in terms of pitch. I've played a tenor trombone. You get alto trombones, which go higher. Um, Bass trombones, which go lower. Contrabass trombones, which go even lower. And soprano trombones. And soprano trombones. Of course, I I was trying to remember that was cool, which is... The same pitch as a trumpet, right? It is. It's the same length tubing as a trumpet. It's a very silly instrument, which I've got down here, which um, I can't really play, but I can make silly, waggly noises with. Um... (laughs) (laughs) So that's that one. And what I was showing off there, of course, is the most distinctive feature of the trombone which is of course the slide the yeah slide. yeah slide. lots of silly noises in the slide what what drew you to the trombone why did you choose the trombone that's a really good question i'm not entirely sure i feel i feel maybe maybe because it's like a fretless instrument mm. um can you just explain what you mean by so i guess by fretless i suppose it has no buttons or nothing telling you where to put stuff in place so you you i guess that makes it slidey so like and I guess kind of similar to like string instruments as well like violins, cellos because I started off on violin actually mm-hmm. and then I tried out loads of different instruments and then um, somehow for some reason settled on trombone I don't remember why but I think maybe what I liked about it is that I find it I like the expression you can get from mm-hmm. it so I guess you can like use a slide but without sliding everywhere but you can kind of like 
things like that I, yeah. I guess that maybe that sound I guess I just feel nice when I play it it, it feels more vocal almost you know I think so you're yeah. able to slide up and down in the way yeah. that vocalists might in, whereas with a, a trumpet obviously we've got the buttons the valves um, or obviously with something like a piano you've got no none of that at all you've yeah. just you've got the, the key down and that's it yeah um, but yeah you're able to to slide another word for that, I suppose, is portamento. Is that yeah? Do you use that? Yeah, or? I think is that the kind of classic. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Synths and things. Slide yeah. and glide. Slide and glide. Exactly. <laughs> could you just? I wonder if you could just demonstrate like playing a scale with the trombone. So playing individual notes and then kind of sliding the same distance it doesn't need to be a whole scale. Do you know what I mean? So right. Okay. From like seventh position. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> you're setting the slide as you go up, yeah, and then sliding between them, and then just sliding all the way up. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. so funny. Even after playing trombone, so it still makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it, is, it is a comedy like, instrument, right? It's it funny. Is, yeah. It can be a comedy instrument. It's one of my favourite instruments, but yeah, but I guess like, you must have had that many times over your career. There. Yeah, I remember like when I if I do like teaching or workshops with quite young people they just want you to they want to hear the slide and then you play it everyone goes like crazy like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's so funny because I feel like it should be like oh no, this is a serious instrument but it still cracks it, me it up can, it can be both yeah. So, yeah. something that I feel really strongly about is is that music doesn't need to be either serious or entertaining like you, mm. it can be both you know like you, you are I think often particularly in the worlds that we operate in kind of you know jazz improvised music crossover classical that kind of thing it it sometimes can be in danger of taking itself too seriously and that I think and not being very inviting for audiences in other words to mm. sort of mm. it can sometimes push audiences away as opposed to bringing them with you and I think I think for me the greatest way of approaching music as a as a musician or as a listener is as a kind of a bit of an adventure and that can be you can take it very seriously as we both do like take our careers very seriously and take music as a as a form very seriously but also you are allowed to have fun like that is it is yeah. okay to have fun you know yeah um and i think when you're teaching kids especially that's important i guess right yeah because i guess um you want to find the enjoyment in it i mm. suppose and i think it's important i think especially yeah, when we're doing this professionally i think it's important to remember what is fun about it because it's very easy to get sort of like bogged down with all the kind of more technical sides of it and everything so yeah, yeah I, I remind myself of that often I've chosen this because it is an enjoyable way to spend your time and so the mm. minute it, I mean you know there are obviously bits of it that aren't aren't always enjoyable and I've talked about the the difficulty of practicing when you're on holiday or practicing when you're away or any of those mm. things really it can be tricky or obviously all the technical side and it's competitive and it's financially unstable and the rest of it so I think there's almost more responsibility because of all those things to to keep it fun for me. yeah yeah because definitely. if it's not fun you wonder what, what you're doing yeah <laughs> what <the point> is. <laughs> like, why am I spending all the time exactly. on my own <laughs> exactly on my own in a, yeah. in a small room so speaking of fun would you could you just demonstrate some of the stuff that you would do in, in a workshop for kids for example Right, okay, so I guess, yeah, the comical side of trombone. Um, so I guess, yeah, you got your slides. Yeah. 
guess you can kind of like do some sort of flutter tongue stuff, mm-hmm. which is quite fun. <laughs> So it's it's quite a versatile instrument. Again, I think the the fact that it can mimic the human voice in a way, it's got that that kind of yearning quality about it because mm. it, it has got that kind of more mournful, expressive vocal quality. I, I wonder if you're just able to play something more kind of lyrical, using the slide a bit more as a as a mode of expression rather than of comedy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um... <laughs> So I played the last post a couple of weeks ago for uh, Remembrance Day, and we and we were talking about harmonics, about about the fact that on the trumpet demonstrate the well, without moving uh, any vowels on the trumpet or anything. You can get the, these harmonics right, and of course yeah. the same on trombone. Yeah, so the same thing on. I think it's the same structure on trombone as well, yep. isn't it? So that's with the slide all the way in, and yep. if you then go down to the, so put the slide out slightly to the next position. If you. And that's the same as pushing one of the valves down, the second valve that happens on the trumpet, yeah? Yeah. And then you've got the next one down. Yeah, and so on, right? Yeah, and I guess it's the same concept of for anyone that plays a guitar or something, it's like, using the capo yes, on your yeah, guitar, exactly. you kind of just slide it up or down and then I suppose it's the same. You concept. get the same idea, yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 yeah same idea. Brilliant. Yeah. All right, well, I wonder, um, it feels like we should have maybe a bit more, a bit more playing, <laughs> <laughs> just to show off the, uh, yeah, the range of the trombone. Here, the okay. Thanks so much. Hi, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. 
So my thanks once again to Rosie Turton there. Do look her up. She's got a lot of fascinating projects going on and a lot of beautiful music. And she can also be heard on the forthcoming Hackney Colliery Band album, which you'll be hearing more about as 2024 progresses. Now, my final guest for this episode and indeed for this year is... Chris Hadfield, Commander Chris Hadfield. Now, Chris is an astronaut, of course. He uh, was commander of the International Space Station. He flew shuttle missions. He was aboard Mir, the Russian uh, space station. He He's had an absolutely unbelievable career as an astronaut and before that as a test pilot for the, I think, Canadian Air Force. He's an absolutely lovely man as well, more importantly. And since coming back down to Earth, he has written... Uh, a couple of books. One fantastic kind of self-help book, I suppose, called um, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, which I find really helpful. Actually, I I do quite often come back to things in that book. I'm I'm not a big self-help book kind of person, but actually there's a few things in there that really have stayed with me. So I really recommend that book. He's got a new novel out as well called The Apollo Murders, which I urge you to check out. And he's a fantastic public speaker and educator. And of course, I know him as a musician as well. He is a guitarist and singer. One of the things that made him more of a household name than most astronauts are, I think, is that he recorded a brilliant version of David Bowie's Space Oddity while he was aboard the International Space Station. Um, And he and I have played that song together. I've accompanied him uh, with my little band as part of Robin Ince's shows with Brian Cox um, at the Hammersmith Apollo and the Royal Albert Hall. So I've done Space Oddity with Chris was it probably three or four times and some other songs too including the song you may have heard last episode which i put out a little teaser episode around christmas uh, of chris singing his own space themed christmas carol um, so you'll be hearing that again and i've played that with him and I, I i've had the privilege of working with chris quite a few times and he's always been an absolute joy to work with and so he's very kind to give me this interview because as i mentioned earlier he really doesn't do podcast interviews but because he and i have worked together and because i wanted the interview to be focused around music and its links with exploration um i think you know he very kindly agreed to talk to me and give up some of his time so Enough of me. Over to Chris Hadfield. So uh, I should start off, obviously, by introducing uh, my guest today is uh, a very special guest indeed. He is Commander Chris Hadfield, um, astronaut, uh, test pilot, musician, amongst many other things, um, I'm sure. Uh, Chris, welcome. Thank you very much for, for coming on the show. Hello, Steve. It is definitely my pleasure, and uh, it's a pleasure to talk to a musician like yourself, someone who can compose so effortlessly and and, uh, and lead a disparate group of people to do something <laughs> incredibly complex. I have great respect and, and happy to be talking with you. Oh, that's very kind indeed. That's very, very kind. Um, so I, I, I want to talk to you. We've worked together a couple of times uh, in, um, in a musical capacity. I have accompanied you singing Space Oddity, of course, uh, which, yeah. you, uh, which you sung in the space station most memorably and uh, also a song of your own which i think we might hear uh, later on um yeah. I, i'm gonna i'm gonna start by talking about hammersmith if i may and and um there you talked about your uh, ideas around the evolution of travel and how um uh, we, we have gone as a species from traveling um just uh, uh, across the mo- a mountain range to now of course going uh, out into space 
um, and and you sort of talked about how that drives technology and technology drives us to do uh, there's a sort of interaction between technology and our and our willingness to explore and I wondered uh, as a as a traveller and musician, if you had any thoughts of the kind of commonalities between those two things, why do we travel and why do we make music? And is there any relation between those two things? Sure. I think fundamentally, <clears throat> travel is, is a safe form of exploration. Um, it, it's, uh, it's not just a theoretical exploration of an idea like you might pursue at school or in a book or on a television or a, t- a computer screen, but you actually go and experience something in person and that that's hugely instructive but it's really an exploration um, and, and therefore a deepening of yourself and it's always been linked and limited by technology if our only means of transportation is on foot then uh, of course it limits the parts of the world we can see and for tens of thousands of years that's all we had we didn't domesticate horses till 6,000 years ago around the time that we invented the wheel mm. um, we you know we didn't invent any sort of powered uh, propulsion maybe maybe sail but it was really the, the harnessing of um, of ever increasing more complex technologies that allowed us to explore further and further until eventually our technology was so good we could explore to the north and the south pole and, and live in those places and then into the third dimension, and all the way up, as you say, to a space station. And so to me, it is answering a fundamental human curiosity by applying the best of our ingenuity to try and better explain the universe to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's what music is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. M- music is a way, it, like all art, it's a way of trying to explain the universe to ourselves. Mm-hmm. How, why would you write poetry or, or paint or, or sculpt or or, um, or play music? It's it's another way to try and um, make sense of it all. And limiting ourselves to just the spoken word is is pretty insular. I mean, wiggling this uh, glottis and shaping the whistling of the air with our tongue and our teeth and our lips in an attempt to actually express what we're thinking and feeling. It's it's. It's a very uh, small bandwidth, little little way of, of sharing those things. So art is so much richer, and and music is within that. And I think the marrying of the two perhaps is is interesting also in that the um, some of the oldest uh, human made objects that we have are musical instruments from mm. forty thousand mm. years ago, and every sailor who headed over the horizon was carrying with them not only the the tunes inside their head but musical instruments hornpipes and and fiddles and things and even up on the space station we have a, a small uh orchestra of instruments a little battery powered keyboard we've had uh we've had flutes and a, and a, a subsize saxophone but uh we have a guitar up there and uh and it's a very portable and expressive instrument and gets played almost every day. So I think that combination of curiosity and an inability to express ourselves completely means that music will explore with us everywhere we go. I think, yeah, I think that's very interesting what you're saying about some of the earliest uh, objects being musical instruments. I mean, for me, something that's that's endlessly fascinating is the fact that we've these bone flutes and things we've discovered uh, 40, 50,000 years old. That's, I mean, it's absolutely staggering that that's 
f- about 40,000 years before we invented, you know, agriculture. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's mad that we were yeah. making flutes before, you know, for 40,000 years before we, we started sort of domesticating wheat. It's, and and you, it, have, you have to assume that our progenitors had already discovered, of course, mm. uh, percussion. Yes, and um, whistling, yep. and and melody, and and they were just uh, someone. Someone must have picked up one of those hollow leg bones mm. of a crane or or whatever, and blown in one end, and it made a whistling noise. And figured out a way to to change the tonality. You know, it's it's uh, it's just an extension, sort of like before there was ever a Stonehenge. There were countless wood hinges. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there were all sorts of temporary instruments that we don't have record of. But yes. finding the bone and the and the stone flutes. And instruments that that's the permanent record of it and as you say it predates uh written word and, and predates our formation of any sort of complex society by tens of thousands of years mm. I, and i i mean i play the the conch shell um yeah and and that's the same thing i, th- I just find that the thought process b- behind someone looking at a shell and then generation after generation maybe picking it up and playing it in different ways trying to trying to find a way i think somehow in our in our psyche uh, we're wired to think that we can make interesting noises out of inanimate objects like, you know, like shells. Um, and I, it must have taken uh, many hundreds of years to, for someone to find just the right shell, just the right combination of shaving the right bit off at a certain place. And suddenly this thing is alive. And I find that that kind of, you know, fascination with making uh, uh, abstract sounds out of inanimate objects quite strange. Uh, yeah. As a um, as an astronaut and a pilot and an aviator, I've always been envious of birds. But mm. as a singer, I've also been envious of birds. Mm. Uh, the the complexity of the sounds they make, and I suspect that fifty thousand years ago, we weren't that much different. We would have loved to be able to fly, or we loved to be able to make sound the way that some birds do. So, so uh, I, I don't think we're that different than the other creatures. We just maybe uh, express it to each other a little more. In, in a more complex way. In a more way. complex way, yeah. And I, I suppose what you're saying about it mirroring uh, travel is that is that we're, we're wanting to explore our world uh, in abstract ways. Right? Which, and, and I think that the nature of music being abstract uh, it, it allows us to do something that if it was more demonstrative, it would we wouldn't be able to... Uh, so, I mean, it, I think often mu- music can go beyond poetry because um, a, a particular sound frequency can kind of speak to us in a way that even the most beautiful set of words can't always, precisely because it is abstract. Yeah, everybody knows what a transition from a major chord to a minor chord means mm. and, and what it feels like and, and what it reflects in human emotion. And, and it happens just by, you know, by lifting one finger, mm. but, but it has a, uh, a very evocative impact on, on each of us. And uh, and that's a pretty tough thing to do with just uh, the the written word. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were talking about instruments on a space station. I hadn't realised that there was a whole orchestra up there. I, I, th- I think you mentioned to me in the past that obviously there's a guitar there and a keyboard. But so uh, do they do they get brought up over successive years or how does that? Well, right from the beginning, I think the first instrument up there was a harmonica. Okay, One of the right. early Je- Gemini crews, I think, brought a harmonica because oh, wow. it was Christmas time and they were, didn't want to do jingle bells or something. But um, the Russians have had guitars on their space station since the 1970s. And when I was on the Russian space station in 1995, they had an old St. Petersburg guitar up there that they'd had on Mir since the beginning, which wow. was launched in 86. But it, that same guitar had been 
on a previous space station on Salyut, and they transferred that guitar from Salyut to Mir. So, wow. so that guitar had been up there for a long time. Um, but lots of astronauts and cosmonauts are musicians, and so they've always, if you're going to spend six months somewhere, what's important for you to take with you? Uh, you, mean, you need all the basic necessities of life, but that doesn't exclude art. And so we have some astronauts who are singers and, and some who can play instruments. And so there's always music, just like on every exploration vessel, there's always mm. been music. And depending on the skill and the background of the astronauts, so we've had flutes and uh, there's a ukulele up on the space station. Wow. And, and there's a harmonica or two and, and the guitar... Um, just because they don't weigh very much, and sure. if you can squeeze it into one of the resupply ships, why not? Why not throw it in there? Of course, and and the and the crew can tuck it out of the way and, and play it for, just like on Earth, for for reflection, for special occasions, for celebration, for honoring traditions, and for fun. But yeah, I mean, it's just it's I, I find that endlessly fascinating that journey, as I say, from uh, just the very short uh, explorations over a mountain range, and then to discovering around that same time very primitive instruments and now flying them into space it's a it's a sort of interesting marrying of the two um disciplines and and presumably uh most astronauts are obviously come from a science or or, or a, a pilot background but it's so it's interesting that i think so often we think of musicians and uh, as or artists as separate from sciences and that sort of division between the two but it's that's a mistake i think no, I've played in an all-astronaut band for 25 <laughs> years. In fact, we're getting together for a reunion and playing here very shortly. Um, no, it's uh, th- there's nothing exclusive about it. Um, uh, there, there's lots of crossover. There's that great scene in Master and Commander where, uh, where the ship's surgeon and the ship's captain are, are playing music together. And I think that's, that's common. But it's also that music uh, needs to travel mm. in order often to evolve. And bluegrass wouldn't exist without taking the the roots of music and the instruments that people brought with them and then evolved it, or or jazz. You know how how did New Orleans create the music it did? It's because of people bringing their own traditions and their own forms of instruments and then adapting them both in a new place. So I'm really intrigued what the first bands on the moon will be like you know, <laughs> after we've been living there for thirty years. Uh, there's no reason to think that uh, that music won't evolve to something that makes sense with one sixth gravity and probably a lower air pressure and and a, and a different set of circumstances. Music, just like it's always done, will evolve and reflect the the new place that it's in. Yeah, I mean, and I think music at its best is is like exploration and travel at its best in that it, it's a it's an all humanity uh, effort. It, it, it requires. Um, uh, cooperation uh, across the different um, uh, cultures and uh, different skill sets and you kind of can draw draw from one another's experience at its best and as you say New Orleans music kind of being a fusion of uh, music from Africa and then you know and, and music from Europe and then suddenly becoming this amazing new thing and then that itself taking a whole new direction it's uh it's also primal and necessary. I played in a Celtic band for several years, and some of the Celtic music is is pretty basic and and um, and sort of uh, gets right right into your your feeling. Mm. Uh, it's hard to avoid. And 
I remember looking up while we were playing one of those uh, thumping kind of songs that that just catches your your uh, your gets your toe tapping and makes you want to dance. And there was a, a little one year old dancing, maybe fourteen <laughs> months. I don't know. This child had no idea what music was, had no words yet. No one had ever explained anything to them. Um, they didn't have any role models for what all that should be. But that child was dancing, mm. and just because the music. Uh, meant something to someone who had such little experience on earth so it's it's uh, it's fundamental to who we are and and it's going to continue to go with us everywhere that we travel and explore you may remember i uh, premiered a work by my daughter uh called farting, yeah. on, the, farting on the sofa which is an example yeah. of exactly that she was two and she i find you know it's very interesting she was just improvising with music in the way that she improvises with language and she was sitting on yeah. the sofa evidently farting and uh, <laughs> composed a little ditty, and uh, and but it's funny that we sort of unlearn that. So uh, as, as we get older, we we continue to improvise with language all the time. But people are terrified of improvising with music because it feels like a separate thing. Whereas actually, I think the two are quite closely linked. Um, as a as a space explorer, um, maybe you should just tell my listeners if they if they're not aware of all of your different missions you've run, some of the highlights of your space career, and then some of the highlights of your musical career. <laughs> Uh, sure. I uh, I decided to be an astronaut when I was nine years old. That's about the same time I bought my first guitar. My brother and I were in an auction sale, and uh, a farm auction, which is fairly common in Canada. And um, in amongst all the tractors and household goods, there was this old acoustic guitar went up for sale, and we bought it for $5, and, and that was the very first instrument we bought. And, the, and I taught myself my first chords on that guitar. But at the same time, I was dreaming of flying in space, I've taken a guitar with me everywhere I've ever gone. I, I thumbed around Europe for six months and dragged an old Yamaha FG180 to the top of a mountain in Narvik, Norway, and <laughs> and um, and to Turkey and and all across southern Europe. And um, I lived at the bottom of the sea for a while when I was training in astronaut oh, wow. um, preparation. And had a guitar down there that uh, had to be taken apart and brought down to the bottom. So I've always had a guitar with me. But it was really the the pursuit of uh, exploring space that drove a lot of my decision making, and I, I became an engineer and uh, joined the Air Force and became a pilot. And then I was a fighter pilot um, in the height of the Cold War, intercepting Soviet bombers over the North Atlantic. And then I went to test pilot school, mm. and um, several of my test pilot friends also became bandmates. Uh, Rick Husband, who was the commander of Columbia. Uh, when it came apart and everyone died in uh, February of 2003, he made his way through school as a singing waiter really? uh, at uh, yeah at Texas Tech, and uh, and and he was very active in his church and a big strong uh, choir kind of voice as well. And Rick and I sang and wrote music together at, at test pilot school. And Susan Helms, who I think she flew all of the shuttles, and um, she lived on the space station when I visited there on my second space flight. She was a terrific keyboardist, and um, and so we all played music at test pilot school, and then uh, all of us got selected as astronauts, all coming from different backgrounds. And uh, I, f- I was an astronaut, active astronaut, for 21 years, and um, flew in space three times, and was NASA's director in Russia helped build two space stations up in orbit, um, did a couple spacewalks from the space shuttle Endeavour, and then lived on the International Space Station for a little under half a year and was the commander of the uh, of the International Space Station. So 
also uh, and went around the world about 2,650 times. So wow. that's that's my space background. <laughs> and then in music, um, I've always I played trombone in in school and bass trombone, but hardly anybody ever says please play play trombone. It's you know it's normally an accompaniment instrument at best. Um, but guitar is much more portable and a more complete orchestral kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I've always had a guitar with me. And uh, it was only natural to try and have one on the space station. And I'm glad that um, the NASA medical health support team, the psychologists and psychiatrists, they're the ones who put the guitar in the space station, not I. Is that right? It's a Larry Vey. It's made in um, Vancouver. Uh, It's a slightly undersized guitar, what's called a parlor guitar. And... and, um, they bought it in the summer of '01, and they, uh, or they bought it in the spring of '01, and then launched it in the summer on Atlantis, and it's been on the space station ever since. Um, uh, <laughs> and you, you could do the math. That's a, that's you know a hundred thousand orbits plus, and um, and it's been played by a generation of astronauts, self included, and and I played up on the space station much as I do on Earth. I played. Uh, as often as I could, um, often in the evening when things were quiet, when when uh, things had settled down, when I was trying to explain my own thoughts to myself, hmm. it's nice to bring a guitar into your hands. Um, and then I wrote and recorded a whole album of music hmm. uh, late at night while I was on the space station, which is called Space Sessions, songs hmm. from a tin can. And just recording it on board with a with a garage band mm. and a uh, and a floating microphone, you know, just floating <laughs> weightlessly in front of me, and um, and then I, I played along with uh, with some other bands from up in space with uh, with the Chieftains. I did a song, and then wow. I played along with I had a long chat with Neil Young from the space station, and it was funny playing Neil some of his songs from space so he could sing along with me, and. Um, and then uh, I, I covered a, a David Bowie tune that a lot of people have heard. I did a version of Space Oddity that hundreds of millions of people have since seen. So it's a nice way maybe to marry the two, the idea of what seems a remote and perhaps robotic, um, very clinical existence and recognize that it's extremely human mm. and shared and mm. uh, celebratory and, and uh, fun. And I think um, through the music that I wrote and played uh, on board the space station and then, and then shared through social media, I think it helped people see what exploration is really like and, and what, what life on a spaceship is like and maybe a little glimpse of what it's going to be like when we, when we go even further mm. uh, to the moon and beyond. I have two very nerdy music questions about that. First of which is, do, do you have to take up spare strings when you go to space? How does it work? <laughs> or uh, do well, they get flown yeah, the up? Hard, the hard part of putting a guitar up, of course, is the guitar itself. But yes. as each subsequent astronaut musician comes up, they they think, well, what should I bring? Maybe some plectrums, you know, or... or um, uh, do we have the right pickup? You know, mm. you have to be worried about the electromagnetic environment on a spaceship, so you can't just bring anything. Um, but then strings. One of the beauties of a space station, and maybe it's your other question, is it's a better place for a guitar than on Earth because the humidity never changes, mm. the temperature never changes, and the air pressure never changes. Mm. You're in this very carefully controlled 
bubble. You're sort of like in a uh, a guitar preservation case. That's where you're living. And so the guitar... A very expensive stays, guitar preservation case. <laughs> yeah, it stays in tune very well. Um, so so it's quite good for that, better, better than on Earth. But, uh, of course, strings get, get a little tired and they, mm. they uh, corrode a little bit. And so often a crew, as part of their personal kit will bring up some musical uh, accoutrement, like a new set of strings. So there were several new sets of strings. Right, there's, right. there's there's everything you need. So, uh, you know, one one astronaut musician will ask a previous one, hey, what, what all's up there? What do I need to bring? You know, I can just throw it into the little bit of personal kit that you're allowed to take up with I see. you. And so, yeah, it's essentially the, the most expensive guitar case of all time, uh, if, if it's <laughs> sort of preserved up there. Well, I, Planet Earth is. I yes, think, I suppose that's true. I suppose yeah, that's true. Yeah. And, and how, the other, my other question was really about the acoustic. I mean, how's the, what's the acoustic in the space station like? I mean, obviously I've heard, I've heard your, your fantastic album, but I mean, did you, it must be quite a challenging place to, to sort of record, and, or is it like singing in the bathroom? Um, well, if you, um, if you go to a hotel... And you get into your nice little hotel room, it's kind of peaceful. But if you think about the hotel, there's a, a, a temperature control system. There's mm-hmm. something controlling the power. There's an air recirculation system. There's all the pumps and the fans that are allowing the water to flow. In a spaceship, you're in the part of the machinery where all of those things are being processed. Mm-hmm. And it's noisy. If you go down in the basement and the, the, the bowels of, of any big building, it's a noisy mm-hmm. place. And you live in the bowels in a space station. You can hear all of those things, like like perhaps an infant in their mother's womb. You're constantly there with the gurgling and the heartbeat and the breathing and then mm. the digestion and everything else. And and so space stations are noisy. The ambient noise level is somewhat akin to maybe riding in the back of a bus. So it's a tough place mm. to record. And so I hunted around for the quietest little place I could find that also had some privacy because I didn't want to inflict myself on the other crew members who were all busy doing what they're doing. So I actually found the quietest place was in my little sleep pod, the little uh, uh, tiny sleep quarters, which is uh, about the size of a coffin, I guess, inside. Um, (laughs) So if you could imagine a coffin with a sleeping bag, and and, um, and that's and the but if you could imagine lying in a coffin and turning the guitar so it was sort of half parallel to your body, and then having Garage Band uh, on on one side of the coffin next to you, and and then a little microphone dangling in front of you. That's that's what it was like for recording all the music right. that I did, um, and because inside that sleep pod. I could close the little door and turn the fan down to a minimum. Mm. And it, it was, uh, from an ambient noise level, the quietest place I could find. And, uh, and so that's where I recorded all the music. And, it's, and, and as you say about disturbing other, other people, because, of course, you, you work on shifts around the clock. Is that right? Or? Uh, we don't, actually. You don't? I'm uh, sorry. I'm, I'm we, no, um, not unless we have to. Right. We, we've tried, but we found it's more efficient. Um, for everybody to work uh, like a 16-hour day and, and sleep at the same time. But we don't always. But still, everyone, it's your, your time is, is scheduled by mission control down mm-hmm. to five-minute slices for the entire six months that you're there. What you're doing now, what you're doing five minutes mm-hmm. from now, five minutes after that. And the only real free time you have is when you're supposed to be asleep. And um, 
So that's often when we do things personal. Mm. You know, you'll steal mm. the first two hours of your designated sleep time to uh, take pictures out the window, or mm. call your family, or or write about what's happening, or think about it, or mm. study and get ready for the next day, or play music. And and I and you're not there for yourself either. You're you're there on behalf of seven point seven billion other mm. people. Mm. So so you take it pretty seriously. Of course, and. And I was very careful, especially as the commander of the spaceship, to make sure we got everything else done first. Mm. And we set records for the amount of science that we got done. And we even did an emergency spacewalk four days before we came home in order to save mm. the station from a, um, a big ammonia leak. So we still had lots of depth of reserve available because I couldn't. It would have been unconscionable to, uh, you know, to sort of sacrifice any of that just for a personal pursuit. Yeah. But in, in addition to all that, I also wrote and recorded an album and um, amazing and shared shared it with the world. Uh, so uh, I so to me, I, it, was, it was the right balance. I struggled to to finish an album here, and I'm a full time musician, <laughs> so I don't know how you do was commanding a space. Station. Well, it, it was harder than that, Steve, because all I did on orbit was uh, multiple tracks of voice and guitar, hmm. and it wasn't a produced. And then when I got back to Earth after about two years, I was like, "Well, I've got all these recordings. Hmm. What am I going to do with them?" Yeah, sure. And so I took them to a producer friend. Um, in Toronto, and uh, we added in some other instrumentals later uh, yeah. to my guitar and voice. We didn't mess with my voice and guitar because that was the space component, but uh, but uh, with with the rest of it, it the album uh, has done quite well. So I I, and I find it sort of it's the first complete uh, work of art I think ever um, conceived and created and and finished off the earth and. And so, uh, kind of an interesting project to be part of, and, and I'm really pleased that it captured uh, a moment in history and a moment in time. Mm. Well, it's absolutely fantastic, and um, I think now I've got uh, just a couple of very quick questions to ask you at the end. But I wonder, maybe now, if you wouldn't mind playing us um, "Jewel in the Night." Is that is that going to be? Oh yeah, possible? sure, sure. I have uh, I have a, what do I have? A Martin guitar here today. I uh, on my third space flight, we launched just uh, on the around the 20th of December, 21st, depending where you are around the world. And uh, that meant that for a lot of people's traditions, it was almost Christmas. And Christmas is a tradition of a star in the sky, um, you know, that leading the wise men and, and signifying uh, uh, a, a historic birth. And, um, and I, my brother and I were thinking before launch of, what would the stars look like from that vantage point? But also, what would Bethlehem look like uh, when you're going around the world every 90 minutes? What would the whole Middle East look like? Put things into a very different perspective. And the fact that we now, as a space station, are brighter than any star going around the world. It's the brightest thing in the sky after the sun and then the moon. So it becomes a different star in the night. And and so... Um, called the song Jewel in the Night. Go, and I recorded it. Uh, I just slapped, I was in a hurry. I just slapped the iPad on the wall. I, you know, I was so trying to get so many, I hunted around on this iPad until uh, I found something that said audio record. I hit audio record, did one test, go, okay, sounds all right. And then played one take of a, <laughs> just like I'm doing right now, of Jewel in the Night. And, um, and then that was it. I didn't even listen to it. And I just sent it down to earth. And then my son, Evan, put it out on SoundCloud. And before I knew it, you know, 75,000 people had heard it and, and, uh, and we were away. But here's, um, here's Jewel in the Night, the very first and only space carol, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
so bright, jewel in the night, there in my window below. So bright, dark as the night, with all of our cities aglow. It's long been our way to honor this day and offer goodwill to men. And know wherever we go, it's come round to Christmas again. I'll jump to the bridge. Here we go. that gather below Love for the stranger that you'll never know For those who aren't with you Who wander above So bright Jewel in the night There lies the cradle we knew It shall be our way to wander straight and take with us all that we know and never cease this message of peace from Bethlehem so long ago and never cease this message of peace from Bethlehem so long ago. Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much. It's so lovely hearing that, that again. It's such a, I think we've, we've played that once or twice uh, together and it was a real sort of honor orchestrating that for you. And it's a beautiful, beautiful song. Just hearing uh, yeah, I love the version you did. I'm just, I'm just put, plugging you back yeah, sure. in here yeah, sure. for audio. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an evocative song of, um, of those chord sequences from thousands of years ago. So, uh, mm. so yeah, I, I like playing the song, and, and I delight it, uh, the arrangement you put together, especially with the, uh, there was some fiddle music on top. Mm, I've done it with a fellow on, um, on accordion as well, and it really suits itself to, uh, to that, that accordion sustained sound. Also. Well, I think I was playing, I was playing an ancient instru Indian instru instrument, which actually is over here, um, which is a, a shruti box, which is a kind of drone instrument, I think, on that. Uh, on the yeah, it really suits. It's lovely, that kind yeah. of... Yeah, rich, uh, uh, sonorous sound. Essentially, th this project is is me trying to reconcile uh, the fact that I'm just making silly noises for a living and and trying to justify <laughs> to myself that that's the thing. Oh, that so I, you're a politician? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just try, trying to justify to myself that I mean I'm not that bad, but uh, but <laughs> trying to justify to myself that uh, I've uh, you know this is a valid use of uh, an adult life because sometimes when I, as you can see I'm sitting in this sort of 
glorified shed in my garden and it feels um you know when when i talk to uh people like yourself or people who've done really fantastic incredible things that change that move things on for humanity and i sort of think sometimes tinkering away in a shed by myself <laughs> it can feel it can feel uh not the most the, the the best use of time and my education and all the rest of it and so with uh-huh. that in mind um uh, the question that i'm sort of asking is what's the what's the point of music uh well that's sort of almost like what is the point of thought what is the point of language what's the point of emotion i don't think they're separable um imagine if you possibly could a world without music i mean try and go an hour without hearing music or without playing anything in your head or humming a tune or whistling or 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 it's it's beyond necessary i think it's fundamental to who we are so so to explore it and to do it well is like anything else uh, uh there's a famous quote i think of what 90% of everything is crap right and and but but that's where the, the majority of life is mm. uh and so i i think it's um it's a an intrinsic part of who we are and so to be able to take that that uh fundamental deep natural part of humanity and become very good at it to become multi-talented at it so it's not just uh, a tune that you can hum but but an entire symphony that that in your case you can create with all the cording and the complexity behind it um when i think about those a cross-breeding group between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens in that cave above the Rhine 42,000 years ago what intrigued me when when the archaeologists or paleontologists picked up those bone flutes and and figured out what they were and started blowing through them was that to a large degree they followed the same scale that we find natural you know do re mi fa sol la ti do you know that that whole normal sequence of notes and and i realized that if somehow i could get into a spaceship that could travel through time and i could bring my larry v guitar from the space station there that i would bet within 5 minutes of walking into that cave i could have everybody laughing or i could have everybody crying uh with no commonality of culture definitely no commonality of language apart from the fundamental uh human commonality of music and and so uh i wish i had both your your gifts but also your your devotion and drive to become so good at music as you are because i think it's uh it's something that uh, that is far older than history itself and is not going anywhere and it's one of the things that uh, that we all cherish when somebody truly masters it well that's a very flattering answer <laughs> thank you for that that's that's beautiful I think that's I think that's about about it that's fantastic from I uh, we've got a lot of really fan- great stuff there um great so I just say for the show uh thank you very much to my incredible guest today uh, commander Chris Hadfield formerly of the International Space Station and Mir and countless other missions um amongst <laughs> other things and of course into uh, sort of intergalactic almost intergalactic troubadour 
I'll go with orbital. At orbital, this point, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. First chance between interplanetary or intergalactic. I'm all for it. <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah, yeah. A pleasure, it's maybe not a pleasure quite to yet. talk with you, but I look forward to the next time we also get a chance to play music together, Steve. I'm sure it'll be seen. Thanks again, Chris. It's an absolute pleasure talking to you. Nice to talk with you. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye bye. So my huge thanks once again to Commander Chris Hadfield for giving up so much of his time to talk to me about music, exploration, space and so much more. Uh, What a privilege it was to have him on, especially as he doesn't do many podcasts. So if you enjoyed that chat with Chris Hadfield and earlier with Steve Thompson, uh, it's a bit of a space special today, I know. Um, But there's going to be a bit more space and music chat on the 20th of January at Wilton's Music Hall, where I'm going to be doing a live podcast recording and gig. And of course, one of my guests is the brilliant Professor Chris Lintot, who is a professor of astronomy at Oxford and also the presenter of Sky at Night, which I believe is the longest running TV show of all time. So it's quite a claim to fame. Uh, And we also have, of course, other brilliant guests on that night. We have the Filament Choir, um, which I'm really excited about, a full choir uh, down there. And we have um, Hackney Colliery Band guys. We have Valeria on harp, who you heard in episode two. All sorts of stuff. So, yeah, 20th of January, tickets still available. Meanwhile, thanks to my other guests as well, Steve and Rosie, and, of course, to Angelique Kidjo for the theme song with Hackney Colliery Band. Um, We're going to be back on the 11th of January. And until then, please do pass on the word to any musically curious people you have in your life. If they haven't heard of the show yet, put them in touch with us. And a reminder as well that if you'd like to support the show and get a load of extra bonus content, which is going to be updated very soon, um, please head to my Patreon, which is if you go to originofthepieces.com or Patreon slash originofthepieces, I think it is. Search on Patreon for Origin of the Pieces, you'll find it. Um, yeah, it will really, really help to support the show and help us make it the best it can be. Meanwhile, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you on the 11th of January. Stay musically curious. Bye.